Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 59, and we're going back to Detroit for a conversation with longtime Michigan referee and promoter A.T. Huck, who we will get to in just a moment few things I want to talk about before we get there, a couple things related to my books, one of which, of course, is uh, my book about the Sheik, which also connects to A.T. Huck, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. I've mentioned on here that I'm going to be coming out to Michigan very soon for a couple of reasons, so I want to touch on that again. Uh, once again, April 22nd, I will be at the Library of Michigan in Lansing, as Blood and Fire has been named one of the Michigan Notable Books of 2022 by the Library of Michigan. So I'll be there for that. And I also want to say that I'm going to be coming out again a second time into the Michigan area, into the Detroit-Lansing area. I'll be there the last week of May. I'm going to be doing some library appearances to talk about the book. I'll be at the library in Karuna, Michigan, in Charlotte, Michigan. And in Port Huron, Michigan that week, I believe it's May 22nd through the 25th, I'll be around. So if you're in the area, come by and say hi. I also want to address the new book, which I'm so excited about because I'm just getting the ball rolling. Of course, I'm talking about Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. I officially announced it here last week. And since that time, uh, the wheels have begun to turn. I've begun to work on the book. I'm in the early research stages. This usually takes me a few months, so no writing yet, but just kind of digging around, trying to learn what I can and and doing research. And also, very important, reaching out to people that I will be kind of getting memories and insights from, from being around Gorilla, working with him. And I did my very first one. I've got a few that are booked already, but I did my very first one just the other day and it was with Kevin Sullivan, who I also spoke to for the Sheik book. But for some of you that remember, Kevin, as a young rookie wrestler, was in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation in 1975 and 76, which were really the prime years of, of Gino Monsoon in the office there as kind of a towering presence physically and metaphorically in the McMahon office. So he had some fascinating insights and memories of, of being a rookie around Gorilla Monsoon in the locker room in those days. So uh, that interview went well, and there's more that I have planned to come, and I'm being as thorough as I can here. I've got a, a long list of people that I'm reaching out to and, and talking to for this book. So I'm excited. It's coming along nicely. And having said that, I, I'd like to now take us to this week's interview. So A.T. Huck, 
for those that don't know, is uh, someone who has been in, uh, involved in the wrestling business really since the early 90s, but he's a fan going back to the 60s, a fan of big-time wrestling in Detroit. He grew up with it during the heyday of the Sheik and later on came to work with the Sheik, for the Sheik, alongside the Sheik, got bladed by the Sheik, a whole lot of crazy stories that uh, he was willing to share with me and kind of reminisce about those days, both as a fan and as somebody involved in the business. So I think you're going to enjoy this week's interview, especially if you are, like I am, fascinated with Detroit big-time wrestling. And so without further ado, I'm going to take you to my interview with A.T. Huck right now. Okay, so it is my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome somebody who I first got to know when I was working on the Sheik biography, Blood and Fire, uh, because he is somebody that has been a lifelong wrestling fan, going back to the 1970s, back to the heyday of, of big-time wrestling in the Sheik. He was a wrestling referee. In fact, he was the referee for the last match ever between the Sheik and Bobo Brazil, which we're going to have to talk about. He's still involved on the independent wrestling scene in the Detroit area. He, he does stuff with XICW, uh, Truth Martini's House of Truth. He is the co-host of the Cruise in the Barrio radio show with Rude Boy Rudy Hill, who, by the way, I also interviewed for the book and has one of the best stories in the book. I'm talking about a man known to his parents as Alan Hogabook, but in the world of wrestling, known as A.T. Huck. Huck, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Brian. I wouldn't trade this for the world, man. <laughs> <laughs> and and again, I have to thank you because it was it was guys like you and guys like Rudy and and there were so many other people, honestly, who made the book what it is, which is I feel like the most complete look at the Sheik's life and career that you could possibly do in the year 2022, you know, so many years far removed, having those kind of memories. And like I said to you then, like, I'm jealous of the fact that you actually got to live through it as a kid. I mean, that must have been incredible. Oh, oh my God, Brian, you, you have no idea. Um, my story with professional wrestling starts off with me first learning about professional wrestling. I was flicking through channels um, at a very young age, maybe eight or nine something like this. So this was in the, the late 60s. And I came across this, um, a guy eating paper on TV. And, and I was like, my sister, my older sister was standing behind me. And I asked, I said, what is this? And she said, you never seen wrestling before? And I was like, no. And it was the Sheik. The Sheik was eating paper on television. It wasn't an actual match, but he was acting crazy and just doing all this wild and crazy stuff. And I was hooked <laughs> just from that. And then subsequently, I saw him just destroy somebody. And uh, man, at, at that time, I don't even know if I knew what time it was, what station it was on, but I, I made sure I found it again. And um, I was hooked ever since. Like I said, this was the mid to late 60s. Oh, wow. See, I was being kind to you. I said 70s, so we could yeah, go back. Yeah, I, I, I was deeply entrenched by 1970. <laughs> but that is but that is so cool because, um, you know, from what we know of of the Sheik and, and big time wrestling, that's really the hottest years. I mean, late 60s, early 70s, 
Honestly, it might have been the hottest territory in the country at that point oh, for a couple oh, for of sure, years. Man, for sure. You know, I, I don't, like I said, it was so long ago. I don't actually remember my first um, live event at Kobo. Um, I remember matches, not full shows, because like I said, I had to be eight, nine years old or something like that. But one of the matches that stands out for me um, at Kobo, it was originally supposed to be the Sheik versus Bruno San Martino. Oh, yeah. And um, Bruno San Martino um, was not at the event for whatever reason. I know the reason they told us at the show <laughs> that he had a death in the family or something like that, which a lot of times was the case when somebody didn't show up. But um, that night, Luis Martinez took Bruno San Martino's place. And to this day, Brian, that has to be one of the greatest matches I've ever seen in my life. Well, didn't the they? Luis Martinez went almost an hour. Right. And it was so much heat. I didn't know what heat meant back then, but the excitement in the arena was just unbelievable. And Luis Martinez took it to the Sheik. Most of the match, he had him in a headlock. But the way they told the story and the way the Sheik was trying to fight out the headlock, and Louis would just get him in the headlock again and, and hip toss him and get him right back in the headlock and just crank it and crank it. And the Sheik's arms were limp. And um, it was a time limit. And then the next two weeks, I went back to see the rematch, you know, because, man, Luis Martinez, he's going to beat him this time. But <laughs> to everybody's astounded, the Sheik just destroyed him <laughs> in the next show. <laughs> but that was usually the case. They would get the upper hand on the Sheik in the first match, and then the next time, the Sheik would just destroy him, you know. He had him figured out by that time, I guess. Well, also, like, doing something like a one-hour draw or whatever it was or getting close to the time limit, I mean, that's not something that he usually did. Like you said, it was usually no. over in a few minutes and, and you know, and just right. not a lot of uh, wrestling well, or anything like that. His, his early matches did go longer. But I yes. think this one went particularly long because of Bruno not being there. So they had to, they had to deliver that night. Well, did you – I'm 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 assuming all that. Do you know more about the the Bruno No Show? Because Dave Drayson, Dave Brzezinski tells that story. I don't know if you're I know aware a little of it. bit about it. You know, I know Dave very well, and you know, I guess it has something to do with the payoff. Yeah. What? Well, what I had heard, what he told me directly was, um, Bruno had been there not long before, maybe even the last Kobo show. I don't know. He had been on the yeah, card. Well, and it was, and they wound up drawing. This was like in the middle of the war with Dick the Bruiser, and they drew probably their their biggest, most lucrative house that they ever drew um, mm. with Bruno. And I think he was wrestling the Sheik like the first time or something like that. Yes, Bruno and the Sheik. That was like the biggest show they ever did there. And he stiffed Bruno on pay. That's what Dave told me. Like I can't remember the numbers, but it was like a small fraction of what he told me he was going to get. And Dave said, and this is hilarious, but Dave said they went out for Chinese food afterward, Dave and Bruno. And Bruno was just like, don't tell anybody, but screw this. I'm not coming back. Like, this is ridiculous. Uh, I'm not coming back. And Dave said he kept the secret. He knew, but he was afraid to say anything. So they're at the next Kobo show. He's back there. And everybody's like, where's Bruno? Where the hell's Bruno? And Dave is like, I knew why, but I didn't say anything. Didn't say anything. 
But honestly, like that's that says a lot to me about one of the, I guess, one of the drawbacks of working for the Sheik because Bruno is not somebody that you hear any stories about being difficult. You know what I mean? Like everybody, everybody loved him and, and he was easy to work with and he was a decent professional guy. So if you pissed him off, obviously Mm -hmm. there's a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Bruno hasn't had many kind words. Rest in peace. No. You know, about the Sheik in, in his last few years. You know, Root Boy had a conversation with Bruno about the Sheik and was really disappointed because the way that Bruno ran the Sheik down, you know, yeah. in that conversation. But, you know, hey, when it comes to money, you know, when you're making all that kind of money and you don't get what you're promised, you know, I'd be pretty upset too. You know, but um, I know after the fact, Bruno went to work for the Bruiser, you know, not long after that, you know, teaming up with the Bruiser. Right, he did, which was which w- was a statement, I think, exactly. you know, clearly. Exactly. But like but, you said, the the show before it was actually the Sheik versus Bruno San Martino. And I think they went to a double count out or double disqualification or something like that, and the match didn't last very long. That, you know, so, they so I guess then doing the hour match with Martinez was probably like to try to make up to, for the fact that you know this match everybody was waiting for wasn't going to happen so l- let me give them you know kind of like an extra special effort and we'll do this hour match we'll do a kind of match that we don't usually do to so that we don't have 12,000 people asking for a refund exactly. <laughs> probably so I, I don't remember like i said i was very young but i don't remember anybody getting up and complaining or anything like that because the, that show from what i do remember about it was very stacked you know, it could oh, have God, been 12 yeah. or 13 matches on that show, you know, which he often did had, you know, really, really stacked shows. Oh, yeah. I mean, like you said, sometimes 14 matches, 15 exactly. matches, and you'd have like a who's who of people from all over wrestling, just the, oh, yeah. the hottest stars. I mean, like dream matches. Oh, yeah. If and people look, if people go back and look at some of those Kobo results, I've said it before, but I mean, it beats the hell out of even Madison Square Garden. I mean, Madison oh, yeah. Square Man, Garden would ha- would have a like great WrestleMania shows. Yes, yes, they were <laughs> for the time. The level the of time. star power and the and the kind of like drawing cards. It was a WrestleMania type of a card constantly for those right. years in Kobo. You know, and, and looking back, you know, like I was so young that I didn't really know who everybody was at that time. You know, but. I, I saw Kelly Kowalski live. Man, so many Harley Race and Dory Funk, um, Johnny Valentine, Pompero Purple, Wild Bull Curry, all of those guys. Edward Capanchia, I actually saw him wrestle the Sheep. Lord Layton, I saw him wrestle the Sheep. You know, Lou Klein, I saw that match. And, you know, the Sheep just destroyed Lou Klein in that match. There was <laughs> nothing about that that was to write home about the besides seeing Luke Klein get destroyed. But I saw Tex McKenzie in the sheet. Just so many purple in the sheet. I may have mentioned that already, but man, just so many memorable matches. And some of the other feuds on the show, not just the sheet, but Tony Marino and Killer Brooks, you know, stands out in my mind as a, a great match. And Bobo Brazil versus Johnny Valentine. I saw Bearcat Wright turn on um, Bobo Brazil in a match with Johnny Valentine. 
just so many things I saw back then. It's just unbelievable. And I think that I I believe because you're not the only person that I've talked to that has had these kind of experiences. And obviously, if you were a fan, I mean, big time wrestling has been gone so long at this point that most of the people who are still with us who were fans were kids at the time, were little yes. kids. And I think that that helped. I really do, because a character like the Sheik and just all the crazy stuff that would go on in these larger than life characters, I think having so many young people as fans was very helpful because, like, for example, and, you know, because I'm a New York guy, so I'll always bring it back to New York. But mm-hmm. in that same era, at your age, you would not have been even able to get into Madison Square Garden. They, You wouldn't have even been old enough to get in. Oh, really? Yeah, they had a they had an age limit. I think it was like 15 or something like that. Oh, wow. And that lasted from about the late 50s into the early 80s. Okay. And, and like, you know, obviously Kobo didn't have that and most arenas didn't. And I think it it helped because I'm imagining a lot of the fans were kids like you. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a, a a family friend who took a bunch of us, you know, kid boys to wrestling, and um, we would fill the car up. It was maybe five or six of us, and we would go. And um, that was my first experience to him taking me to wrestling, you know, which was great. You know, I saw um, Tom Perro Purple win the U.S. title from Bobo Brazil. And, and like I said, I was so young, I cried, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to see Bobo Brazil submit to a bear hug. You know, I was like, what's going on here? That's my idol. Yep. <laughs> but it, it was great, man. And um, so so you got to go to a lot of those Kobo shows then, yeah, I'm assuming. Yeah. I didn't go every time. You know, because they in Detroit at Cobo, they ran every two weeks. Yeah, and um, pretty much they were packed. You know, and I, I talked to people, a lot of people now about you know houses, you know how they draw, and for the sheet, you know, four thousand fans or three thousand fans, that was a low, low house. And now, if you if say you get four or three thousand people, you're like jumping for joy, you know, on an independent thing. Oh, I know. I know that every two weeks. And honestly, it's not even on the independent scene. Like I look at the numbers now that WWE and especially AEW draws to their TV. And that's the range that we're talking about. And I'm looking at numbers and I'm going, holy crap. Like if this was 50 years ago, this company would be ready to pack it in. They're doing they're doing, you know, four, five, six thousand people for like a Monday night raw or an AEW dynamite. And, you know, because the, the TV production and the stage and everything takes up so much space and they have very creative ways of shooting things and whatever mm-hmm. you can't really tell, but you're talking about buildings that are like half empty, two thirds yeah. empty. And back in the day, like you said, Kobo arena and many other buildings, not the only place, you know, every other week, I mean, God, Memphis, they were doing it every week, but every other yeah. week, You've got a sellout clo- or close to a sellout, definitely over 10,000. Like if you, and, and it's the same market every other week and a lot of the same stars. If you did under 10,000, it was like, oh, well, we didn't do that well exactly. this week, you know? Exactly. And like you said, man, that's every two weeks in the same building, you know, and now they have trouble when they're traveling. You know, they're not in the same building every month. So you think that the houses would be much bigger, but you know, hey, 
like I said, the Sheik was ready to shut down when he got three thousand people. That right, right. I mean, they those some of those last Kobo shows. That's the numbers they were down to. They were yeah, down to like yeah. about three thousand, and that you know, like you said, for for a lot of shows today, that would be a bonanza. That would be like show of the year if you did a number right, like right. that. And and some of the reasons you know that you know the houses started to go down here in Detroit was um the coverage with TV. You know, he switched mm, yeah. stations. Um, and I think um, by the end, he was on a station called um, Channel 62 WGPR. And they didn't have the range. They didn't go into Ohio and some of the sit- upper cities in Michigan, like the previous stations, Channel 50 and Channel 20. I think they went further as far as their reach. So that that hurt the attendance because the number of people weren't they weren't able to watch anymore. So, you know, being able to promote in those cities and get the crowds in like that, you know, dwindled because of the station that they were. Well, let me ask you this, because you were actually there. You know, I don't know how well you remember because you were very young, but everybody talks about how another reason why things went downhill were was that people were just getting sick of the chic. Like he was just on top all the time. He was always winning. It was frustrating people because they wanted him, you know, they they wanted somebody to finally get rid of him or whatever, and it mm-hmm. never happened. Is there any truth to that? Was it sort of like the fans just getting tired of the same old thing, do you think? I would probably say to a degree, you know, um, you know, in retrospect, you always, you know, can look back and say they should have done this and they should have done that. But like, like we keep saying, I was so young at the time that I really didn't think in those terms yet. I wasn't anywhere near smart to the business you know everything that i saw just happened right there on tv and it was what it was for me you know i don't think i ever got tired of the sheep myself (laughs) oh he was my favorite you know i didn't know it at the time you know i was afraid of him and he was crazy but he drew me to the show him and bobo brazil and purple you know i kind of like the wild and crazy guys you know dick the bulldog brow or wild bull curry you know, the ones that were just acting crazy, Abdullah the Butcher, that type of thing. But they had all of those other stars, you know, as well. You know, it wasn't just the Sheik that was, you know, the draw. You know, he was a huge part of it. But, man, one of my most memorable feuds was, like I said, um, Killer Brooks and Tony Marino. You know, those matches were great. Right. Um, man, just so many. The, the fabulous kangaroos against the Stomper and Ben Justice. That was a hot feud here in Detroit for the tag team titles. And then that that team splitting up, too, the Stomper and Ben Justice kind of. Ben Justin turning heel on the Stomper, and, you know, they had the battle of the who had the best sleeper hold, that type of thing. Right. But there was so much more to big-time wrestling than the Sheik, even though he was the top draw. And he did try, you know, with other people on top. You know, he wasn't the U.S. champion for the entire run. You know, Mark Lewin was champion, Bobo was champion, Furpo was champion, you know, plus many more, you know, that I remember. He even had Gino Hernandez in there. Gino Hernandez for a brief time. I I watched that on on television, you know, when he um, won the U.S. title from Bulldog Don Kent. You know, know, I'm watching, I was like, okay, here's Don Kent about to beat up somebody. And didn't know who Gino was at the time, but he shocked everybody. It was a sunset flip off the top rope. And we had a new U.S. champion. And um, they threw him right in the fire, man. He had to be very young. I don't know exactly how old he was at the time, but, man, he was wrestling Abdullah the Butcher and, 
you know, just going through and Don Kent and he was by the the next time I saw him on TV he had a big band-aid on his forehead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was his first that was Gino's first big run, really. It, it, yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't even realize that. I mean, that was the first place where he really got a chance to do something. And when I was researching the book, actually, what I found, what I what I was convinced about when I was looking at the Sheik's results because you know obviously he would travel all over the place he wasn't he wasn't just staying in his own territory he was a draw everywhere and what i saw was a few months before he brought gino in the sheik had gone to work for the von erics and i think it was like the only time or the first time in many years that he'd gone to dallas he went down to dallas he worked a bunch of shows he wrestled brody i think he wrestled fritz von eric a whole bunch of things and now Gino Hernandez at that time was just starting out in the Dallas territory. And I'm a hundred percent convinced that he probably saw him there when he was there and said, Hey, I want to bring you back to Detroit with me. And I think we could do some business. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm very strongly convinced that that's what happened. Yeah, quite possibly. But also during that time, Gary Hart and Mark Lewin, they were trying to help the sheep build the territory back up. So Mark Lewin was coming in around that time as well as Gary Hart uh, managing um, different wrestlers for the Sheep. And um, Mark Lewin at that time, he was a huge baby face here in Detroit. Captain Mark Lewin, you know, he had the, the he was the people's champion and um, he called himself the captain, you know, feuding with Bulldog Don Kent and the Sheep and Abdul the Butcher and Terry Funk, you know, during that time. And uh, yeah, they were trying to help the sheep out. Um, I think um, Kevin and Fritz may have even come in um, to Detroit during that time. A lot of people were trying to help out. The Funks would try to help out. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's where that famous story comes from about the about um, Eddie Farhad Jr. claiming that the cash box had been stolen. You know, Terry yeah. Funk always tells that story. But yeah. but the sheep did have some people that wanted to try to. You know, help right. his business to come right. back again. Yeah, he had the talent, you know, because around, you know, that time and, you know, the exact years, I'm not sure, but Austin Idol was here. Randy Savage was here. Terry Funk was here. Mark Lewin was here. Look at all that talent. You know, yeah. that could have really, you know, boosted the territory if, if they had taken the time to use those guys and let them show what they can do, you know, along with Baba coming in. You know, Abdullah was still here. Purple was still. They had a lot of talent. Yeah, and and really, some of those people, like you mentioned, Austin Idol, he's another one that really got his first big start. I mean, I think he'd been in the WWF around the same time, but but he really got his first big push in Detroit. And in fact, I think that's where he first started using the name Austin Idol oh, was okay. when he was wrestling there. And and Randy Savage, I mean. I talked to Lanny Poffo for the book, and he said that Randy was loyal and loved the Sheik for the rest of his life because he was so thankful for what he did for him early in his career. Like some of his first matches were in Detroit, and you know, mm-hmm. then he he got some experience and and he came back. You know, he started as Randy Poffo, then he got some experience. He came back as Randy Savage, and he and he feuded with the Sheik, and he's wrestling the Sheik yeah. at Cobo Arena 
you right. know, when he's like this hot young rookie in the business and you know, little right. did anyone know he was going to become one of the biggest stars of all time. But like, so right. there were people that were passing through and it's a shame yeah. when you think like, maybe if they had focused more on those people and maybe, maybe if the Sheik had actually said, you know what, I'm going to just run this thing now. I'm, I'm, I'm 60 years old, whatever age he was at that time, maybe like 50, I'm going to step back and I'm going to let these young guys, you know, really like set right. the town on fire. Yeah. They might have, he might have at least survived until Vince came to town, at least, you know? Right, exactly. Because things were changing. Right. And, um, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I wasn't in the business at that time, but I think the deal at Cobo may have fallen apart, mm. you know, because they started running at um, the Lincoln Park Community Center, smaller venues in the area. But once he lost that big, big house at Cobo, you know, he was just a small indie promotion at that point, you know, drawing smaller crowds, at, you know, in Saginaw and Flint and things like that. And um, probably trying to cut the budget down even more, you know, as opposed to bringing in all these big stars because he really couldn't use them, you know, if they weren't at Cobo. Right. You know, it became. Returns. Yeah, it became a lot. It became a lot of. The local guys, like that's exactly. where you started seeing like John Bonello being right. one of the top guys and things like and that. My mentor, Sweet Daddy Malcolm Monroe. Right, yeah. that's right. That was that. That was that era where you mm -hmm. know you, you didn't see the big territorial stars coming in anymore. Exactly. Did you ever go to any of the Bruisers shows when the war was going on? Did you ever go down over to Olympia Stadium? The Olympia? No, I didn't. I never went to the Olympia. I watched it on television, and it's strange because the Olympia was really closer to my house than Kobo. You know, Olympia was five minutes from my house. <laughs> and I never went to the Olympia. But oh, I watched just television. Yeah. And and he was he was trying to do the same thing, bringing in people, you know, he would reunite with the with the crusher. Like right. you said, Bruno would come in, Baron von Raschke, he would have, I think he would have like AWA people coming in and things like that. But he never really got a foothold. That's the thing I found when I was when I was really researching it and looking at what was happening, it's like he, you know, he kept coming back. He did it for years, but he was never really like, let me put it this way. The Sheik was never really in trouble in that promotional war. He was very, always very clearly going to win that thing, at least in my opinion. They just, it didn't have the same traction that big time wrestling had and the same fan right. loyalty. He didn't have the, the crowds that the Sheik had. I think Bruno was, I'm mean, not Bruno, but um, Bruiser would get 4,000 people, which is a lot, you know, if you think in terms of today, you know, but if he had four, the Sheik may have had eight or not, right. you know, 1,000 people at the same time. And sometimes Bru um, Bruiser would have six matches, you know, as opposed to the Sheik's 12 in a stacked roster. So it was, you know, and I think Brun, um, Bruiser may have run two to three years. Yeah, it was, like I think, about yeah. just under three years, maybe. And in that time, and like, you know, they're running constantly against each other. And in that time, I think maybe once or twice only did the Bruiser actually draw more people. Like when they were running on the same night, almost every time the Sheik would draw more people. Yeah. But even then, when you, when you look at those numbers, my God, it's like you're dealing with one market, Detroit, in the city of Detroit on a given mm -hmm. Saturday night. 
you've got between Olympia Stadium and Cobo Arena, you've got over 20,000 people right. that are watching wrestling and it's happening like every two weeks that are going exactly. to see live wrestling and big league wrestling. We're not talking about indie shows or anything. We're talking about major league stars. And it's, and it's just like, I don't know. I don't think that you guys back then realized how good you had it in terms of being fans. We did. Maybe Dave Brzezinski, Supermouth, he may have known because he's a little older than me. And he was actually involved as the photographer and a writer for the body press. So he was more entrenched than he was behind the scenes. So he got to see a lot more than I did. I was a little younger at that he, time. He was also going on the road a lot, too, if, if yeah, you listen to him talk really about it. Like, man. He, he was yeah. really living the dream at a young age. Yeah, even as a young person, he was like getting to go. He went to California. He got to go to all these different territories. He got to really have a sense of, which 99% of fans didn't get back then, but he got to have a sense of, this whole world of wrestling that exists out there. It's not just yes. what I see on my TV. There's like so many other things happening. He actually really got to see that. Right. And, you know, Dave is a, to me, a, is a hall of famer. A lot of people don't appreciate Dave um, for what he's done and where he's been and the people that he's rubbed shoulders with, mm. you know, the stories that he can tell Dave is a gem, you know, for professional wrestling without a doubt. So let me jump back ahead. To the bruiser, oh, yeah. Back to the bruiser. Yeah. You know, I think one of his things that he didn't draw as well as, once again, was the station that he was in. Mm. He was on Channel 9, which was a state, um, a TV station out of Windsor. And Channel 9 only went to Windsor in the Detroit area. I don't think a lot of the surrounding areas got Channel 9 out of Windsor. You know, it wasn't one of the main stations. It wasn't a UHF station that had the long range. It was a station we got out of Canada. You know what I mean? Right. So he's drawing from less people because less yes. people are seeing the TV show. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But let me ask you this. I wanted to jump ahead a little because I know, you know, later on, obviously you were a fan for years. But then you started getting involved and, and you were initially a referee. And yeah. I, uh, I love the story, I guess what, like going back to the early 90s or so, but I love the story of that you told me, which I hope you'll tell again, but of being the referee for the Sheik and Bobo's last match, which I guess was like wow. 91 or something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. I, I met Sweet Daddy Malcolm Monroe by chance. You know, um, and this is a story I've told many times, but he was um, working security for um, one of the local uh, pharmacies, Perry Drugstore, I believe it was called. And me and my wife at the time, um, we I saw Malcolm and I was like, hey, I recognize him, he's a, a wrestler. And she said, hey, you should go up and say something to him. And I was like, no, no, I don't, you know, I don't ask for autographs and that type of thing. So she talked me into going to say something to Malcolm. So I went up to him and of course he, being Malcolm, he's like, no, that he wasn't who he was. And me being who I am, I was like, yes, you are. <laughs> so finally he said, yeah, yeah. And he gave me an ink pen and it said, sweet daddy, Malcolm Monroe on it. And I said, okay, well, thank you. And we went our separate ways. And then I ran into him again several months later at another um, store that he was doing security at. And we struck up a long conversation at that point. And um, during that time, I had a, a family-owned business, a printing company. 
and I gave him my business card. And, you know, we talked about wrestling. And a friend of mine, and I always like to mention Frank, his name um, Frank Young, but we called him Frantic Frank, you know, here in Detroit. And we always wanted to have our own wrestling show, um, not to promote professional wrestling matches, but we wanted to show wrestling from all over the world. You know, we were big fans of Puerto Rico and Japan, and they were just going through, fighting out in the crowd. And that was like, a, we, we were really into what we called ourselves hardcore wrestling at the time. And um, that's what we wanted to do. And so I asked Malcolm, I was like, how much would it cost to, you know, have a wrestling show? It's like $50,000. <laughs> and I was like, 50000 I was like, forget that. <laughs> you know, of course he was working me. You know, right. 50 grand, that's a lot for an indie show. But, um, you know, long story short, he called me up one day and um, said after our conversation that I had sparked his interest into promoting and running wrestling again. And he asked me if um, I wanted to referee. And I had never even thought about refereeing. It was never even crossed my mind. And I, was, I just said, sure. And he said, you know, the main event is the Sheik in Volvo, Brazil. And, of course, I flipped my lid on that. So um, this was 1990, the fall of 1990. And so I met, went, met with Malcolm at a boxing gym. And they had a, a mat down. And he was training, you know, somebody who wanted to be a wrestler. And um, I just bounced around while they were training this guy. And I acted like a referee. That, that was my initial training. You know, I was just doing that a few times. And um, at that show, I don't know if you... Remember, um, Joe C., he used to travel with Kid Rock. Sure do, yeah. He was, he was actually there that night, and I thought he was like five years old. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a huge wrestling fan, I yeah, know that. but he was a, probably about 15 at that time, and yeah. um, he was there. And the bug, who was Malcolm's manager, you know, the B-U-G, that's what I started calling him later. And um, the next, we did it this, I think, only one time. I went into that boxing gym, and then the next time was the show, which was um, January 12, 1991. So I got my real training in the ring, and um, I did one match that night before the main event, and that was Judge Dredd. I think his name was um, Dr. Payne and Samson, who was a friend of Sabu's. Right. So I did that, and then the next match I did was the Sheik and Bobo Brazil. and um, course i was very excited and we you know sat in the back a minute and me being a mark they hadn't smartened me up at all you know i wanted the sheet to burn me <laughs> oh and they kind of looked at each other and um malcolm said yeah okay um the sheet gonna get you you know that type of thing and i didn't know what that meant but um bobo gave me a head but next thing i know the sheet was on top of me and just swiped across my forehead real fast and I was like, oh, and then all of a sudden the blood started shooting out. And I was like, man, maybe I thought it was a blood cap. So that's just shows how much I knew. I didn't know it was my blood. Either. It was coming out of your own head and you yeah. thought it was a blood capsule. Yeah, it was a blood capsule until I realized it, you know. And um, I'm bleeding and, you know, um, Frank comes out with a towel and he wrapped it around my head. I wish he hadn't so we could actually see more of the blood. But, you know, I went in the back and you know, I didn't, I never complained about it, you know, because they didn't really tell me what they were going to do. So I'm sitting there bleeding next to the sheep. He's sitting there bleeding. And, you know, we just started talking. And, but they took a liking to me because I didn't complain. And, 
hey, it was great to me, you know, but I still scored a pretty big gash on my forehead from that night. And I think it was you, I think it was you who told me when we talked about this, that, you know, when you did that spot where Bobo headbutts you and now the sheet comes in and cuts you and all that, where when Bobo would do that, that cocoa butt, the way he did it was so gentle that you didn't even know sometimes that he did it. Like, like sometimes people didn't even know to sell it. Because right. they didn't, they didn't even realize that he'd done it because he was so careful with it. Yeah, yeah, it looked like it knocked you out, but he, like, right. he, he was such a, he was so good at it, right? That he hardly even touched you. But I, you know, knew what was coming, and I went down. But I wasn't expecting that from the sheep. I thought that was it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, they used to say that he had those razor tips, like taped to the ends of his fingers so at any yeah. given moment he could just slice somebody i mean right 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 i believe but, um, it i think those first few sh- we did like three shows um that spring january february and march and then malcolm shut down and um on those shows that's where i met al snow and i'm um, a local wrestler machine gun mike kelly and um, I started working with them. And that's where I really learned how to work was for Al Snow, all throughout Ohio. Um, he had um, a school in Lima. And he was training. Uh, actually, this was before he started training. He started, you know, he opened Body Slammer's gym later. But he was running shows throughout Ohio. And that's where I really, really learned was working for Al Snow. And now he now he runs and owns OVW, which exactly, is, you know. exactly. I, I talk to Al every once in a while, you know, and um, try to get him to use certain wrestlers up here to give them some experience. But yeah, his name I really learned was there. His name Those comes first up. Shows for Malcolm, Rob Van Dam was on the show. And oh Scott right, Blue was on the show, and Irish Mickey Doyle. You know, um, it was it was great, man. <laughs> yeah, I think the show with. That you, where you refereed to, um, Bobo Brazil and the Sheik, if I remember right, I think it was like one of the first matches for Rob Van Dam that he ever had. Yeah, I think he wrestled maybe a couple before that um, because my actual first night as a referee was supposed to be in 1990, and it was for the Sheik. Um, me and Malcolm, we were going to go down to Toledo Speedway. I think that's it was the main event was the Sheik and Abdullah the Butcher. Right. They have that on tape somewhere. Rob did wrestle on that show, and that was 1990. And he was just Rob Zakowski at that time. And that was the Sheik's own show, which I think it was one of the last times that he ever promoted, promoted his own show. show. It might have been the last one, because then he just Maybe started so. going to Japan. Exactly. I um I have that show on VHS somewhere. I know I do. But, um yeah, then after that, yeah, that may have been Rob's second or third show that night at Azteca Hall in Southwest Detroit. So, yeah. Right. And Sabu Sabu had been going a few years longer than Rob. He had oh, already been wrestling. Few. My first independent show outside of Big Time Wrestling in Detroit was a show in Hamtramck at um, Hamtramck High School. And that was Sabu's first night as a wrestler. I think that was 1984 or 85. Right. Um, Sabu, he was Terry S.R. And he right. um the Canadian Road Warrior, who later became Professor Maxwell here in Detroit. 
Oh, that's interesting. I wasn't sure who that guy was. I remember seeing that result mm-hmm. and and not being able to figure out who the Canadian destroyer was. That helps. Okay. Yeah. Canadian, ever... No, he was the Canadian road warrior. Oh, the Canadian road warrior. The Canadian right. destroyer was someone else. If I if I ever get to do a revised edition of Blood and Fire, I could put that in there because oh, I didn't yeah. oh, I yeah. didn't know at the time. But yeah, Sabu was going. <clears throat> excuse me, like you said, Sabu was going by Terry Sr. and yeah. he said, "I know that he never was totally sure what the Sr. stood for." But people said all kind of different things. People joked and said it meant Sheik's relative, <laughs> right? Sheik's relative was one, and I think. I think that Sabu mentioned in his book that he thought it was Sheik's Revenge. Sheik's Revenge, I've heard that as well. <laughs> yeah, I don't like, know how it was the Sheik's Revenge because nobody knew that he was related to the Sheik <laughs> at that time. Well, that's the thing. It was the secret. Also, nobody yeah. knew what SR stood for. So it was right. like... The revenge came later. <laughs> it was like Sheik's little secret. No, but I, I do think that in later years, right, that uh, from what I know and what I understand, that Sheik took a lot of pride in... Sabu and the success that he got and also part of it was here you have this guy who looks a lot like the Sheik he looks like him but he works nothing like him he's like a completely different next generation kind of wrestler yeah and I think that the Sheik actually took a lot of pride in that of just sort of like you know wait till they get a load of my nephew like this guy's gonna blow people away and I really I really think that meant a lot to him from what I understand well, you know, um, Sabu, um, like I said, I, I was on the shows with him early on. And then when he left and went to Japan for FMW, when he came back, he was a totally different person. You know, going over to Japan kind of opened Sabu's eyes up, and he really turned it up after he, that first trip to FMW. That's yeah. really where he started turning heads. In yeah, yeah, that's when he started breaking the tables and things like that. Um, before, he just had a kind of a wild style. Um, right. But once he came back from Japan, I remember when he came back and I saw him, I was like, man, look at you. When he left, he didn't have any scars. Oh, right, yeah. When he came back, he had the barbed wire scars all across his chest and his arms just from that first tour. And um, I remember, this is a story I, I, I like, I don't know if I told you, but one day I actually got a call from the sheep and I was like, whoa, this is the sheep calling me. But what he wanted, he wanted some footage of Sabu. I had mm-hmm. a, a friend who filmed those early matches at Azteca Hall that Sabu was on with the sheep in Bobo Brazil. So the sheep wanted me to come meet him to give him those tapes so he could send them to FMW because they wanted footage of Sabu. So I went and met the Sheik and his wife, Joyce. Me and my wife, we drove up to um, close to Williamston where the Sheik lived. And we met him at a, a restaurant. I think it was a big boy. And we okay. talked out in the parking lot. And, you know, that was amazing to me that I'm standing here talking to the Sheik. Even though I refereed his matches, you know, having a conversation with him and him asking me to do this. Man, there's no way I wasn't going to be there. And it was so cool, you know, I handed him the VHS tapes and then he pulled out a body press program and handed me a body press and said, hey, this is for you. And I I still have that one to date. Even though I have other ones, that one's very cherished to me because the sheep gave it to me personally. That's amazing, too, especially when you think about how, you know, he was so guarded and careful. He only really showed 
his real self to people that he trusted, people yeah. that were in his family or in the business or what have you. And right. and so to do that was definitely a big deal. Yeah, he took to me for some reason. You know, he talked to me an awful lot. We I was on show with him in um, Indiana, and we went out to dinner. And I'm sitting at the table with Sabu, Sweet Daddy, the Sheik, and the Sheik is talking to me the whole time. You know, and okay. Sabu and Malcolm are sitting there like little kids <laughs> just listening <laughs> to us. And the Sheik is sharing his chicken with me, and he liked to put honey on his chicken. And he was like, wow. try this. You know, he kind of had a groveled voice, like, try this. You know, and I ate a little bit, and, you know, but I, I didn't feel comfortable just diving into his food like he wanted me to. <laughs> but he talked about, you know, um, writing a book, you know, that he was working on at that time. I don't know if that ever happened or not, because you have the book. Yeah. I don't know what his transcripts were. He was helping him with that at that time. Oh, let me tell you, I, I really, that was like the holy grail for me if I could ever find that stuff, yeah. and I never did, and yeah. I'll be honest with you, I, I doubt that there ever even was anything, uh, or if there was, I think it's either long gone or just yeah. really fragmented, like, right. there were stories about tapes that he had made with various, like, ghost writers and things, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I have never seen, and maybe if somebody anything. who... If somebody who hears this and can prove me wrong, I've never seen any evidence of these tapes. And I remember when I was writing the book and I had been in touch with Eddie Jr., he said that they had that they had like handwritten notes and things, but yeah. he would he wouldn't share any of it. And you know, I started to wonder if even that was real. It was just very, very hard to get to the bottom of it. I just right. think it might have been something that they were always talking about doing mm -hmm. but, but never actually did i also think another reason they used to do that a lot was they wanted to try to discourage other people other from people. doing it right probably because i remember one of you know, like like my communications with eddie were friendly even even though he was hesitant to work with me it was always friendly it was always professional but i remember like one thing he said to me and rest the soul. But one thing he said to me in the middle of the process was, oh, you know what? You better not even bother because our book is going to be coming out in like six months. You know, and <laughs> I, remember, I remember going, I don't know if yeah. I believe that. I don't know. Right, about right. That. You, were, you were correct. You know, right. Eddie, Eddie was a good guy, but, you know, he was always working some kind of angle. You know, <laughs> I'm surprised yeah. he even talked to you sometimes, you know. He reached out to me. Well, actually, no. I reached out to him when the process first started because, I, honestly, I wanted to to be on the same page, and I would have loved to have worked with the family, even though I know sometimes that limits what you can do and that kind of thing. But I was really hoping to have participation. But what happened was he he responded back to me once it really started rolling and once he started hearing about it from other people. and. You know, it was the first thing he asked me was, how are you going to do this book without me? And I felt bad because it was like I, I had a, I don't think he really realized maybe how famous his dad was. I don't know. I, I didn't even know how to answer the question. It was like, well, I can do it without you. I would rather do it with you. But there's plenty of ways to to do the book, yeah. even if the family isn't taking part in he, you know, they, he wanted money, which I've talked about that in the past, and it was just mm -hmm. kind of a deal breaker. And, yeah. you know, and it's not uh, what he was asking for was 
about five times what I was getting paid to even write the book. So, <laughs> so there was no way, which, which by the way, was not a lot of money, but yeah. there was no way that they were going to be okay with that. Right, it, was, right. it just couldn't happen. I would have loved for it to happen. And I had nothing but goodwill for the family. Mm-hmm. I never had, I know there were some members that were sort of leery about the project. And yeah, once the book came out though, I think I'm hoping maybe that they saw it and maybe they liked it because I haven't really heard a lot of complaints since then. In fact, even one of one of the Sheik's grandchildren actually reached out to me um, not long after the book came out and was very friendly and very kind and 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 was actually in the middle of reading the book. So hopefully well, in the I long see run. I that coming from the grandkids, but Tom and Eddie, they still held very tight that this was their territory. You know, and that they, you know, ran this area that just by default because they were the Sheik's sons. And, um, you know, there was a little bitterness, you know, from Eddie, you know, was toward the other promoters in the area. Um, at one point, I actually went and met with um, Eddie, Tom, and their mother. Um, Tom had a, a auto repair shop in Lansing or close to Lansing. And I went there and they wanted me to be their Detroit promoter. And um, man, it was really emotional. You know, Eddie started crying, you know, and I almost teared up a little bit because I was just so proud that they were that they would ask me to do that. But as I left, Frantic Frank was with me. You know, we talked about it and I said, this is, it would never work. You know, Eddie, just the things that he wanted to do, I, I knew we were gonna I knew we would clash. So it never happened, but I was honored to be asked to be their promoter in Detroit. But it it, it wouldn't it would never work. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I know that you know he he always did have that sense of like this is still our territory. Right. And I know because there had been a couple of interviews that he gave that I got a chance to listen to when I was working on the book, where he he still held that belief even into the 21st century of yeah. just. This is our territory and and we paid for it, you know, because the Sheik had paid Barnett right. and Doyle for it. Right. And we still own it. And unfortunately, and many of us wish that this hadn't occurred, but the business changed, the business moved on. Yeah. And he didn't seem to want to accept that. I know right. he was at he was at the Sheik's WWE Hall of Fame induction night mm-hmm. in, in Detroit. I was there mm-hmm. in 2007. And the whole family was there. I didn't get to meet them. I mean, I saw Joyce on stage when she accepted the award. Yeah. But from what I understand, Eddie was there. Tommy was there. Their kids were there. And um, it was a very big deal. But even in the midst of all that, I mean, Eddie Jr. always had bitterness toward Vince. Right. You know, another second generation. You could imagine, you know, they were similar ages and that kind of thing. I think Eddie was a little bit younger. But this idea of like, well, that that could have been us. That should be me, you know, that right, kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah, well, you know, he wasn't the businessman. Ben no, was. no, I was going to say there couldn't be possibly two more different people on earth. Like exactly. And Eddie Farhat Jr. and Vince right. McMahon. I actually Jr. liked Eddie, though. He, he, yeah. he had his cool time. Oh, no, like I said, I never had an issue with him. I It was always friendly. It was never – in fact, he even said to me, and it's unfortunate what happened with the brothers and how they got sick and passed so close to each other. Yeah. Um, he had been saying to me uh, in the middle of the process, 
that he he was coming around. He actually said, you are the only person, meaning me, that has come to us with a potential book in all these years that we have actually that we're actually considering working with you. And then everything fell apart. You know, Tommy passed, and then Eddie at that point just fell off the map. Like he didn't even, he just told me flat out, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of stuff. I'm very sad. I lost my brother and I'll have to get back to you. It's just not a good time. And then before you know it, he was gone too. And so the whole thing just fell apart. Any hope of, I really do think that they would have come around, but any hope of that just evaporated, obviously. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I I, I can imagine, you know, Eddie was a, he was something else (laughs) to say the least. Yeah. Yes. A unique kind of person, like the kind of people you only find in the wrestling business, right? He had some good ideas, though. You know, um, yeah. one of them I'm going to tell him, just walked through the door, um, Truth Martini. <laughs> he was the one who actually suggested for Truth to be a manager. You know, it was Eddie Farhat that first did that. I did not know that. In 2003. You know, he um, at told Truth, you make a good manager. And Truth at that time was one of the indie darlings just tearing it up all over the place, you know. And and Eddie, you know, looked at him and said, hey, you're a manager. And look what happened. You know, that was a great idea. Martin Truth became, what is he, the number one manager in Ring of Honor history. And that was Eddie Farhat's idea. Wow. I, but then I he had bad ideas. So I remember at one point <laughs> yes, he, he wanted- did. The alpha male Monty Brown would be called the spear chucker. So, oh no, oh no, oh, I think I had heard that. Oh my! Yeah, I was standing God. right there when he said it. What was what was Monty's reaction to that? Do I even want to? Know? His eyes got wide. We both looked at each other, and we we're like, "No way, man!" And, and Eddie didn't know what was wrong with it. You know. Well, good for him for standing up. I mean, you know, some some people might have got al- gone along with it, being Quite just possibly not wanting to rock the boat. Or I mean, we even saw poor Tony Atlas went back to the WWF and they made him Saba Simba. They Saba had him Simba. Run- they might yeah. as well have called him that. I mean, they might had him well. run- running. Well, it around. wasn't as bad as Spear Chucker. <laughs> right? No, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Oh, I don't mean to laugh. That is horrible. My God, I can't even imagine. That is, but but see, that's part of it, and and I don't want to just run down Eddie f- forever, but like part of it was that he was still stuck in that time period. Yeah. Like they might have actually tried that and gotten away with it in the sixties. You, right. you know what you know what right. I mean? Right. I mean, you but, had the magnificent Zulu back then. Right. So. <laughs> that's a good example, right? <laughs> Basically, yeah. Maybe that's what he was thinking of. You know, maybe so. Probably. Probably. Uh, yeah, That's... but, you know, um, going back, you know, after Sabu went to Japan and came back, he was totally different and just, you know, man, he was so, man, he he got so big, you know, going to ECW and that type of thing. And, you know, he actually he helped me get into ECW. You know, I kind of fallen out with Sweet Daddy and got a little frustrated with things here in Michigan, so I called Sabu up and asked him about, you know, refereeing in ECW. And um, first he was like, uh, you know, give me a call around Christmas. You know, and I think this is maybe June or something like that. And the next week he called me up and said, hey, we're going to Philadelphia this weekend. You know, and I went ended up going to Philadelphia with him that weekend. And 
um, ended up refereeing the main event, you know, right in um, the, the bingo hall in Philadelphia. And, you know, they took to me and next two and a half, three years, I was in ECW. So you were refereeing for them for that time? Yes, yes. Boy, talk about a thankless job. I mean, being a referee in ECW, that's, I mean, basically in, in a company that never did disqualifications or countouts, you know, it's like basically yeah. you're you're uh, just trying to keep up and count to three is, is basically right, right, your job. Right, right. And, I, I, you know, it was cool. I did a lot of great matches in, in ECW, a lot of three ways with Tajiri and Little Guido and Super Crazy. You know, I was doing those kind of matches. Wow. Um, my first night at referee Jerry Lynn and Mikey Whipwreck, man, and they were like super fast. I don't know if that was a test for me or not, but they were really moving. And, you know, I was, you know, younger at that time. So I was keeping up pretty good in the crowd. You know, there were some people there from Michigan there, obviously, because they started chanting my name, you know, to New Jack's dismay because he's like, oh, they're going to hate you. They're going to boo you. And when I went out there, people started, you know, cheering me and chanting my name. You know? I don't know if you want that in a New Jack match. I would, <laughs> I would be afraid. No, he was just in the back watching. You know, right. I had known him previously from Detroit. We had brought him into um, Insane Championship Wrestling, which I helped promote. You know, Sweet Daddy here in Detroit. So New Jack had come in and wrestled Bruiser Betlin for us. So I already knew him at that point. <laughs> Yeah, because I was going to say that's one person you do not want to upstage, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm thinking maybe some of the some of the other refs like Jim Molino and those guys just wanted a break, so they gave you the toughest matches to to referee. I don't know why, but Paul, you know, just put me right in the main events automatically. But I had I had known Paul from Detroit as well because the Sheik, not the Sheik, but Sabu and John Pee Wee Moore, they had promoted shows at Lincoln Park and brought Paul in. So I had knew Paul already, you know, from those shows. So he had seen me referee before. Right. And now and now that you mentioned Pee Wee Moore, actually, I remember when, when Rudy Hill told me the story about being at the Sheik's deathbed, which yeah. which was just an unbelievable yeah. memory. But he said that Pee Wee was the guy that got in touch with him and said, the Sheik wants to talk to you. He wants to see you at his house. Mm-hmm. And Rudy was like, um, "It's eleven thirty at night, I, or so, you know, it was some crazy hour, or yeah. or maybe he was at work or something." And he was like, "Well, you better get down there, you know. He's it's important." Yeah. And he yeah. did, and just right, an incredible story, yeah, that's a great story, great story. Yeah, but I um, actually introduced Kiwi to Sabu, and you know, as you know, Sabu and, and um, Kiwi they traveled around together. You know, Kiwi was actually. You know, probably Sabu's right-hand man, you know, helped him out a lot, you know, in traveling and things like that to be together. But we, um, he first met Sabu in, in St. Louis. There was a, a benefit show for Sam Munchnik. And a bunch of us drove to St. Louis. I think this may have been 92 or 93, something like that. And um, I had a hotel room and Sabu, you know, was in my room and Pee Wee drove up there with me. So Pee Wee's standing there, and his eyes are just big because here's Sabu. And I was like, you hadn't met Sabu before? And he's like, no. So they met that night, and and maybe that – I don't know if that was a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) From there, they got pretty close after that. 
it helped. I mean, you know, because Sabu went from, like we were saying, FMW and really getting his name out there. And then Paul kind of discovering him and bringing him to ECW. And then he became, you know, the legend that he is today. And just, I remember in those days too, like, he was the guy that all the tape traders were looking for matches of, you know, that yeah, you could, yeah. that this crazy guy was going through tables at a, in, in a time when people didn't really do that. It was very, very rare and just right. kind of the crazy stunts that he would pull. And it's still amazing to me to, to this day, like people will sometimes talk about, oh, well, you know, it, it, he, he would miss a lot or he would do this or he would do that. And it was sloppy or whatever but the the guy was innovating stuff that nobody else was doing especially in the united states and in the beginning innovation is messy you know but he he was one of the first people to do it and i think he deserves all the credit in the world he's one of the most influential workers of the last you know 30 years so without a doubt without a doubt well i I remember telling two cold scorpio um on a trip to Hillman, Michigan, because Scorpio came. And I think the first time he ever wrestled Sabu was for us here in Michigan uh, for Midwest Championship Wrestling. And he had just, uh, Tuco Scorpio had just been released from WCW. And um, Malcolm came to me and he said, you know, he's trying to figure out a main event, you know, for the next Lincoln Park show. And I was like, man, you got to book Sabu against Tuco Scorpio. He's like, for real? I was like, yeah, man, you got to do that. And, you know, the next day he called me up and found Sabu or uh, Two Colts number. And the main event was Two Colts, Scorpio, and Sabu, the co main event, at least. The main event was supposed to be Abdullah the Butcher and the Sheep. And once again, for whatever reason, Abdullah didn't show. So it was Sweet Daddy and the Sheep. I think Abdullah's mother died about 14 different times. 14 different times. I think that was the excuse that (laughs) night as well. (laughs) But we had a packed house at Lincoln Park, you know, for that show. And that was the show. And you may have seen it where the ring broke. Yeah, I did. In a match with Two Cold Scorpio and Sabu. Yeah, I did see that. And I saw, uh, obviously, the Sheik and Malcolm Monroe match from the same night, which wound up being... The Sheik's last match in the United States. Exactly. He still he still had a few more, but they were all in Japan. Right. Um, that was the end of it. Yeah, I refereed that match as well. And he didn't cut you again that time. No, I stayed away from okay. him. <laughs> did you say to him beforehand, "Listen, you're not coming near me"? Yeah, this time. I stayed away from him that night. <laughs> At least warn me if you're going to do it. Yeah, Holy yeah. But that, that, those were great memories. But um. Jumping back forward, I, you know, like I said, I spent the better part of two and a half to three years in ECW, you know, traveling around with them. And um, those were great times. And, you know, the payoffs weren't great, but looking back, who cares, man? Look at all I got to do, you know? Yeah. Back then I complained, you know, about getting paid, but looking at, I don't, I don't miss the money now. You know, the experience was so much more than that hundred dollars I was supposed to get. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you could look back and, you know, you were a part of something. I mean, that yeah. was a moment in time that people still talk about. And, right, and, right. I, I can call myself an ECW original because of that. That's right. That's right. I saw that, you know, when I was when I was checking out your information. And, and I, I'm glad that we got a chance to talk about that because I was going to definitely ask you about the whole ECW original thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But um, a, lot, a lot went on. In those locker rooms, man. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Or at the, what was the, oh, God, what was the place in Philadelphia? The Blue Meanie used to tell me about it. Just 
the 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 hotel where they would all stay was just like yeah. somebody should just burn it to the ground. <laughs> right. I never stayed there. You know, when I would go the travel lodge, the travel, the travel lodge. lodge. Right. Yeah. We would all we'll always come back home the same night, though. We just hop in the car and drive right back. Yeah, that's probably was the smart move. Yeah, but man, that locker room was something else, man. I don't know if you could have a locker room like that nowadays. <laughs> no way. No way. No. Yeah, I mean, uh, so many. I mean, th- they were the best example of it. But I mean, most wrestling locker rooms, you couldn't replicate today of what they were like. But I mean, no. ECW was, I mean, they called it extreme for a reason. It wasn't just the wrestling in right. the ring. <laughs> no, it was real. It was real to them back then. Now you right. in the locker rooms, guys are on their cell phones, playing video games and, you know, right. playing around back then. No, it was, it was, man, it was pretty gritty. <laughs> well, yeah, I have, I have friends, you know, guys that are, that are younger indie wrestlers today. And, and they tell me that too. It's like, they were kind of, they're kind of disappointed there. They'll be in a locker room and everybody's just on their phone or yeah. like you said, playing video games and stuff. And yeah, the, not telling any stories. Those no, days no are gone. I, I rem- right and no no card games going on. Right. I remember when I came into WWE even in the beginning, and I I came in there late. It was two thousand, but already by the by that point, smartphones hadn't taken over yet. Right, and so you still saw a little bit of that even in the WWE locker rooms. You could still now and then walk into a locker room and there'd be a card game going on, or yeah. um, especially with some of the older time guys, or there'd be people just telling crazy stories and. I started to see it in my later years working there. Slowly but surely, you'd be walking around. It was like when Blackberries came in. You'd be yeah. walking around the locker room going, Jesus Christ, isn't anybody talking to each other? What's going know, on? Everybody's just sitting. They'd just be sitting in the stands you know, before the fans came in, just sitting there. And I'm like, who the hell? At first, I didn't understand. Now, today, that's all you see everywhere you go is people staring at their phones. Right. But, but in like 2003, 2004 – you know, I'm looking, I'm going, what are they looking at? I don't understand. Who are they, who have they been talking yeah. to this long? And sometimes, <laughs> sometimes guys would use it just as a way to avoid having to engage with other people. So I, I remember sitting on a bus trip once and I had, I won't name the wrestler, but it was a wrestler sitting next to me. We went hours on that, on that bus. And I think he just didn't want to talk to me. He was really? just staring at the Blackberry and every now and then I would sort of be like, what the hell is this guy looking at? And I'd peek over and he wasn't doing shit. It was just that he just didn't want to have to talk to just, people. Just didn't want to connect with anybody. And it's funny, you know, I was in um, Impact um, this past fall, last year, whatever it was. And I'm looking at guys and they're on their phones and they're talking to each other. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, you're standing right next to each other, but that's a way that they can say things about people without anybody hearing it. <laughs> I know. It's, see, that this is why wrestling is like high school. I always say that. Yeah. It's like it's like you never left high school cuz 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 I've taught high school and they do the same damn thing. That that's right, the right. that's how they that's how they get away with stuff. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, it's a different world now, man. But Huck, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and talking about the way things used to be. I do appreciate it. Not a problem at any time. And but, the, the, you know, things are, are happening here in Detroit right now. You know, things are about to change. I can that's, see that. Yeah, I tell me that. about it. Tell me about what you – before we have to wrap up, tell me about what you've been doing these days. Well, currently I'm with the House of Truth. You know, um, Truth Martini, 
been training wrestlers here in Detroit for close to 20 years now. And um, I'm, I'd say that's where I'm full time with the House of Truth. You know, um, I was a car salesman for 16 years. Um, I don't want to go back to that. There's and some similarities, not, though. No, there's some similarities, <laughs> you know. Um, but what I'm doing now is something that I haven't done in my entire career in professional wrestling. That's dedicate my entire time to professional wrestling. I've never done this full time until now. That is a great feeling. I've been kind of doing the same myself for the most part for the past couple of years uh, post-pandemic. I've been able to do so much more with wrestling stuff than I ever did, at least since I used to work for WWE, which is a long time ago. Yeah. It's a good yeah. feeling. But here at the House of Truth, a lot of the wrestlers that you currently see out there, at least here in the state of Michigan and in AEW around the world, have come right out of the House of Truth. Dan House. Scarlett, who you see in the WWE right now, trained here at the House of Truth. Zach Gowan, you know, the one-legged wonder, trained right here. Alex Shelley. Um, the list goes on and on. Juice Robinson, you know, who's, you know, been very big in Japan and AEW lately, trained right here at the House of Truth. Now, currently, we have a new crop of wrestlers, seven or eight wrestlers who just started last week. And I'm going to tell you, in a week and a half, these kids know more than a lot of wrestlers who are out there working already. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, people say, how, how can you train somebody in 12 weeks? When you're in the ring, you know, four to six hours a night every week for 12 weeks, you're going to walk out there ready. I can tell you that. And I've watched them and, man, it's, it's, it's very intensive, the training. They, they're learning what to do. And what's a good way that people can find out more if they wanted to go online, let's say, or whatever, or even if they're not in the immediate area and they just kind of want to check it out? What could they There's do? There's a website, um, HOTWrestlingSchool.com. That's where you can go online and find out about um, training and um, what it takes. Um, not the past trainees, you know, a list of the roster is there. Um, their payment plans, and everything is right there on the website. A phone number to call um, is there, and you can talk directly to Truth Martini, and, and he'll go over everything with you right then. Very personal. Hmm. You'll get personal attention at the House of Truth. Well, there you go. That That is uh, that is very exciting stuff, and I, and I hope people – We'll check it out more, and when I when the interview goes up, when our conversation goes up, I'll be posting the links around myself, and uh, that'll be great. So I appreciate it. Hey, man, you have me back on because I got more stories about um, my years promoting here in Detroit. I um, will. Wrestlers that came in, Edge and Christian and Rhino, and so many CM Punk, Brian Danielson. All of those guys work for me here in Detroit. So I got another story for you. That is great. No, because I definitely – I'd rather have that than have us run out of stories. So oh, I definitely good. will have you back, and I've been talking about do, having return guests soon and maybe even doing, like, roundtables, like having a couple of people. Maybe I could do, like, a Detroit roundtable and have a oh, couple of people. That would be great. That would be and great. Man. We'll have to do that. That'll be a and lot I did mention the Truth Martini. If you, um, I know you'll be interested. You know, he'd be willing to also do an interview with me. I would love to do one. We should no, I, I, and I mean that. That's great. We'll have to, 
we'll have to make that happen. I think that would be a lot of fun to do. We oh, could yeah, talk that about that. Would definitely be interesting. I can tell you that. <laughs> Yeah, we could repeat the story I was telling you off air about him running the bases at the Cyclone Stadium in Coney Island. That would that would be fun. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Hey, right. hey, Brian, I appreciate you, man. I'm glad you hit me up, and um, thank you for having me on your show, man. My pleasure, Huck. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with A. T. Huck. Thanks, Huck, and I hope that everybody enjoyed that trip down the Detroit big-time wrestling memory lane. And also, Huck, as he mentioned, is doing a lot of other stuff in the business these days, which I'll be posting about in the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, which, by the way, you should join if you haven't. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Join the group. Join the fun. So anyway, that was AT, and we've got more guests coming up. Next week's going to be episode 60. And my guest for that one is Michael Cavaccini, who is currently working on, he's a fellow author, currently working on the definitive history of TNA Impact Wrestling. And he was kind enough to talk to me about that, talk to me about the history of that company, specifically the first 20 years of that company. And that is going to be coming your way next week for episode 60. Keep listening, because beyond episode 60, we've got more great guests coming. Mike Clark, who worked in the Frank Tunney Toronto office during the uh, WWF years, he is going to be on the show coming up. Phil Schneider of the Way of the Blade podcast and book, as well as the ringer.com. He will be on the way. Also, I've got Mary Freeze, who I mentioned here before, the daughter of... The Wild Bull of the Pampas himself, Pompero Furpo. That was an awesome conversation, and it's coming. I'm also going to be talking very soon with Bob Smith, the veteran former writer of Pro Wrestling Illustrated and the other London wrestling magazines, whom you may remember from his many articles back in the 80s and 90s. He is excited to be coming on to Shut Up and Wrestle, and you should be excited to be listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. Seek out the show. Subscribe to it. You can... Find it on our website, suawpod.com. You can also find it wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Podcast Addict, Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts. A lot of people use Apple Podcasts. Whatever the case may be, wherever you you go to find podcasts, find it. There's also the other podcast that I co-host with Al Castle of PWI. That's the PWI Podcast. Find that in the same places. And while I'm talking about PWI, as As all of you probably know by now, I am a regular contributor to that fine publication, and you can pick up copies of Pro Wrestling Illustrated at pwi-online.com. You can also pick up copies of the other magazine that I write for, which is Inside the Ropes. Get that at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you want to pick up a copy of my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, It is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online retailers. It's available in print form, digital form, and audio form, read by yours truly. So seek it out. And also seek out the wrestling news every morning from Arcadian Vanguard. And I mean every morning, seven days a week, 365 days a year. We are bringing you a morning audio newscast in podcast form, whatever you want to call it bringing you the news of all you need to know in the pro wrestling business. It really is amazing. In fact, I just had a conversation 
with a reporter from NPR who was interviewing me about Blood and Fire, and he mentioned that he is a big fan of wrestling, and he listens to the wrestling news every morning, and so do other people that he knows in the world of journalism. So if they're listening to it, you should be listening to it. The wrestlingnews.com is where you will find it and also wherever you find your podcasts. If you happen to be looking for me on social media, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You will also find me on Facebook, my author page on Facebook, Brian Solomon Writer. And on any one of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my newly updated author website out on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and saying, good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. So long, wrestling fans. <laughs>